Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is called Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. My name is Robert. Not often we have a returning guest, but there are times where people simply are explicitly interesting. One such person is Jerry Jewell, actress, activist, spokesperson for the handicapped, and the star of the film Deadwood. Welcome to Seldom Said, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. Can you give us a little pricey of what you've been doing since our last conversation? Oh, let's see. I, I filmed the Deadwood movie, which aired in May. I, I revised the role of Jewel from the series, and she was 10 years older. And even though I didn't really age 10 years, because I never aged. <laughs> uh, hair, hair and, and wardrobe and makeup really had to work on that <laughs> well if you've aged 10 I've aged 20 so I'm going to prop myself up against a wall and continue the interview I'm wondering <laughs> if you reprise a role and the person is 10 years older there are the obvious natures of makeup and cosmetics and so forth, prosthetics. What did you bring to the part that, to the audience, indicated that the character had grown? Um, I think the movie reveals her perseverance and her closeness to Swearingen. I mean, there was an intimacy there that I don't think was revealed before. And also, she can sing. <laughs> Jerry Jewel can't sing, but no, I'm kidding. No, no, actually, I'm not. I, I sang uh, Walking Matilda for this role. And I have never been a singer. You can ask anybody who knows me well. And this was hard for me to do, but I, I did it. I did it. I actually sang with Ian McShane. I've spoken to two singers, one a country singer, who said that he could not carry a note in a bucket if he simply were asked to sing. But when he played the part, he could. How do you explain that, Jerry? Because it. It's another part of the brain. It's that I could equate that to I have horrible balance as a kid. I fought, I fell a lot. Yet when I got on a skateboard, I could go through cones set up on the sidewalks. I could do wheelies. I, I just rode that skateboard for hours. There was no explanation for it doctors couldn't understand how I could do it and walk the way I do. And I think it's another part of the brain that says, hey, I can, I can ride the skateboard. Do you forget who you are when you're acting? Exactly. Mm. Oh, brilliant. Yes. That's fascinating. 
I would wonder if at some point, as with certain actors, Vivian Lee always said that her brain became cluttered and she forgot who Vivian Lee was. Have you ever had that difficulty? My brain being cluttered? With different characters, uh, forgetting and essentially who you are, what you're doing, and what you hope the future might bring, facing a problem as another person. You know, method actors have, I've heard, have difficulty with that. Um, I, I have never had a problem with that. I mean, I basically know who I am, even though I am trained method. But, um, no, I, but I can see where that could be problematic for some people. I heard Jessica Lange had a very, very hard time separating from Francis when she developed Francis Farmer. That was a difficult role. Yes. There is a quote that's crossing my mind now. Dustin Hoffman was acting with Sir Laurence Olivier, and he said he couldn't find the part. And he asked Olivier, what should I do? He was looking for the sense memory And Olivier said, just act, my boy, just act. Do you just act, or do you look for something to link on to? I think I I look for something, truthfully. Um, It's it's the way I develop the skill. For instance, when I'm at um, Swearingen's bedside and his health is in decline, during that scene... I could only picture my younger sister, Gloria, who died two years previously. And it brought all the emotions of someone leaving, someone you love. And I, in my mind, when I developed Jewel, I made up my mind early on that Swearingen was really my brother. And that's why he could get away with what he got away with and why he loved her. And, you know, he didn't want anybody to know, but I think that that decision as an actress for me put the memory of losing my sister in that scene because I was losing my brother, if that makes any sense. It most certainly does. Uh, Unfortunately, I've just lost someone rather close and it is difficult to step away and then step back. It's almost like an emotional balance. You hope both sides will fill, and you're able to put it where it should be. That scene with Schweringen is very difficult. You said he felt like a brother. Yes. You could love him like a brother, but he wasn't so decent a human being. Do you think you could have loved him as a person? I think, you know, the way I look at it, he could have been a hell of a lot worse to me. Um, That was just their bantering back and forth and not to blow his cover to the others that there was actually a loving side to him. He didn't want anybody to know that. I knew that. That's why I tolerated him. Because if you think about it, all his ruthlessness, what he did to Jewel was hardly nothing. He just, you know, (laughs) 
put her down, emotionally abused her, but she was strong. She stood up to him all the time. Some time ago, I wrote an article describing a person who was a Holocaust survivor, and I was trying to analyze why she was so reticent in dealing with other people. And I finally came to the conclusion that loneliness is a lover you can trust. Swearingen seemed an incredibly lonely character, but he could trust that loneliness. Am I reading too much into the part? No, you're not. He was. Absolutely he was. Definitely. And there was also a scene that was actually cut from the final movie, and it's a shame because it said a lot. And it was only cut because um, HBO and the 11th Hour decided that they wanted more flashbacks for people who didn't see the series. So they cut a lot of dialogue from the actors in the original script of the movie. And one of the things that got cut from my scene was giving him a cup of water and missing his mouth several times and him holding my hand steady so I could give him water. And I actually kissed him on the forehead. And that scene was so powerful. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe they cut it. That's inexcusable. That would have been a scene that lent true gravitas to the entire relationship. I am sorry they cut it myself. I know. I was so disappointed by that. And you know what's really weird? If you look at the trailers, you know, when they were showing the trailers of the movie? Yes. For a split second, and I caught it. I don't know if it was a mistake in editing, <laughs> but in the trailer, you see me kiss Swearingen on the forehead, <laughs> but you never see it in the movie. I see. That's interesting. <laughs> Do you feel, as sometimes I do, and some members of the audiences would agree with this, that acting with the body and in silence is much more difficult than doing dialogue? That what I do with my body in silence is much more difficult than dialogue? Is that what you said? Yes, and not to in any way infer that the physical disability impacts on it, but just the very fact that Buster Keaton could walk down a street and give you the feeling of how he felt, whereas dialogue simply just requires memorization, or am I reading too much into the moment? No, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Definitely. I, you know, my body talks, not in any language that anybody understands. <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely saying something. <laughs> and, I, and I know, in all joking aside, I knew what you meant, is that that kiss was probably more powerful than any other line that I said in the film. Absolutely. It strikes me as an interesting, too, that with a character like Swearingen, and one is hoping that the listening audience says, seen the movie, and the response I've gotten individually from listeners is that they have, it would seem that 
The kiss on the cheek or the kiss on the forehead or the holding of a hand carries more impetus than a sexual moment. I agree. Why, it, why it, so? It, I mean, that's why they had me massaging his feet. Because there was something so loving in that. And how could you be so loving to someone so awful, you know? But this is how complex Swanjin was. Remember when he killed the priest in the series? It was a mercy killing. It wasn't because he hated him or anything else. He wanted to put him out of his pain. There's so much death in any description of the Old West, but particularly uh, in a film like Deadwood, where it starts with Hickok being shot and it ends with people left and right disappearing from the scene. Is there any way to reconcile the amount of death and violence to the fact that within themselves, the characters carried some measure of beauty? Interesting. Huh. Gosh, that's a hard question. It truly is. What are we... No, I have to think about that. I don't have a ready answer for you in that one. I appreciate that. Perhaps you can correlate with me and we'll find an answer together. It's a very difficult thing to do. I just remember as a child watching a war movie with uh, Robert Mitchum. And death was so prevalent that you wondered where its place was in the humanity of the individuals. I wonder at times whether we've gotten so inured in the present time with video games and films and so forth that violence itself just becomes like raising the hand and asking to leave the room. It's just part and parcel of life itself. But perhaps we can go back to that question later. Okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. I mean, I, I look at what's going on in the world today violently, and it just amazes me how it's just, oh, another one. Oh, okay, that's just the way it is. I mean, there's no emotions attached. No, no. I mean, it's just unbelievable what we've gotten with violence. You were able to objectify a part, so you play the person. In the 40s, 50s, early 60s, there was this essence of saying that something was a woman's part. How do you prepare for the part, whatever that part might be, so that it isn't per se that feminine part, you're simply playing a personality? You use the C word. <laughs> well, I was on death mode. I heard it a lot. Um, I think everybody, all the women who worked on death mode, but they all embraced that time where women were treated that way. But they all maintained their dignity as best as they could. Trixie, um, Calamity Jane, 
Joni's dad. I mean, you know, and you look at the situation today with women, I don't think today's woman would have survived, but these women survived in the 1800s, truthfully. That's fascinating. You, you know what's interesting? I went to Deadwood, the real Deadwood, several times. I have a second family there now. And I went to the Adams Museum, and one of the first things I noticed when I got there were the photographs from the 1870s, 80s. And there were all these photographs of men, but when the photographs of women appeared, they were all negative. They weren't actual photographs. They were the negative of the film. And I asked the, the woman who ran the museum, I said, why are women negative photos and they don't get their photos up the way men did? And she said, because they didn't want anyone to know who they were. That's something because I... Of, because of their history. That's... Because of what they had to do to stay alive. Um, most of the women back then were prostitutes, and then they had families, and they didn't want that to be known. So no photographs were ever taken of them, only the men. Please hold that thought. I'd love to pursue it after our first station break. This is developing into quite an interesting conversation. You speak with a great deal of depth, Jerry. We're going to be back in a moment. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. We're back again. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. The place where conversation matters is right here at the end of this microphone. Special guest, Ms. Jerry Jewell, actress, activist, and literally a complex and multifaceted performer. Jerry can you embellish to some degree your description of people living in their own time? And during the break, I was thinking to myself, one of my favorite films is Sounder, and Cecily Tyson is in the film. It was written... Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yes. Marvelous film. During one of the rehearsals, it was said in the New York Times that she screamed at a racist owner, and then the director called her over and said, you can't do this. This is 1938. It's not 2009. Do you find it difficult to step back in time? Um, oh. No, I don't. I, I personally do not. I mean, I, I find it fascinating to explore what it was like. Like when I was on Deadwood, um, for instance, in the movie, I don't know if you noticed, but Jewel was wearing a huge back brace. And these were actual braces that they wore back then. And the reason they put a back brace on me in, re in reality was because I had spinal cord surgery in July and I wasn't recovered from my own surgery 
I, I, the only reason I did the movie, I mean, I called production when I saw the script, and I said, hey, there's no way I can do this. I had back surgery in July. I'm still not walking well. I'm a part-time wheelchair user. I'm in huge pain. Um, so please um, tell David Mills that he has my blessing to recast Jewel. And he called me the next day, and he said, I got your message. And I said, yeah. And I want you to know something. There's only one Jewel, and it's you. And I don't care if I have to get a wheelchair-accessible trailer for you, if hair and makeup comes to you, if I have to make script changes, whatever we have to do, you're going to do this role. And I just bought. I, I couldn't believe he believed in me that much. And when I went to my fitting for the dress, um, Jeannie Bryant, who designed it, made the dress bigger over the back brace that the doctor refused to let me drop for the role, but it still showed through the dress. So what Props did was make an actual 1800 back brace to wear over the dress to hide the real brace. And that was a really fascinating experience to wear that brace from the 1800s. I was like, wow. <laughs> must have been incredibly heavy. Yeah, it was. But you know what? Um, props felt bad, and they kept saying, oh, we're so sorry we have to do this to you. And I laughed, and I said, what? I said, you made a better brace than any of the braces they make today. This is going to heal me. <laughs> <laughs> what then is harder, being a woman or being someone dealing with a handicap? Ooh. Um, oh, God, which is harder, dealing with being a woman or dealing with being someone with a disability? Playing a role and having to balance both of those human imperfections, which we all have. Well, I, I can use it for my own life. I mean, I'm pretty blended. <laughs> I mean, I, I truthfully, the, um, the cerebral palsy, I accept accepted early on, but being a woman was much harder for me to grow into and accept. And I think in part, not entirely, but you know how you're always told as a kid that women move delicately, they're graceful, they, they walk a certain way, and when you have cerebral palsy, there's no grace involved. <laughs> I, I'm like a bull in a china shop. So I, in my mind, I fit that role of being a tomboy. I never saw myself as being a woman per se or a feminine pretty girl because my body didn't agree with it. So that's interesting. That could be a part of my development. 
And that's why growing up, it, like, for instance, if I have to wear a gown or a dress and carry a purse at a red carpet event, that is harder than anything I ever have to do. Anything. And I, I remember in 2013, I was, I was a presenter at the Daytime Emmy. And uh, my publicist, Harlan, said that I had to dress for the event. So he got me in touch with a dressmaker who made gowns for numerous celebrities. They put a dress on me, and $45,000 worth of jewelry flown in from New York, and really beautiful $300 shoes. And I was like... Oh, how do I move in this? How do I? And it was the hardest thing in the world for me to do. I was so self-conscious, and cameras were flicking every which way. Jerry, look here. Jerry, it's this. And, and I'm thinking, God, what do I put my hand? How do I hold my purse? How do I look pretty? <laughs> so I don't see myself as a really delicate human being because I never was delicate. I mean, you want something broken in your house? Bring me over. I'll break it. (laughs) (laughs) I would tend to to somewhat disagree in that I'm thinking to myself now, the Japanese have a kabuki theater. It's a puppet theater. And the characters of the puppets are so obvious, but within, they are gentle. They are... Oh, my God, yes. I'm very gentle, spirit-wise. Physically, I'm not. Would you ever like... Isn't that interesting? That is, but I think we all exude and project something that we want people to see rather than what we are. I've often asked people, how many friends do they truly have? And at first, they'll say 20, 30, 40, and eventually, they'll say one, two. Being open, rather difficult. Would you ever want to play yourself, or have you ever? I've always played a version of myself. Um, You know, it's interesting. I was... Cousin Jerry on Facts of Life and Jewel on Deadwood. And, I, it, you know, for a while that bothered me because it was like, why can't they just let me play a character totally different from me? Why do they have to attach my name to everything? And looking back in hindsight, it's an honor to be asked to play my name because it's a, it's it's an affection, if you will. It's it's a love and appreciation for me so much so that they want me to have my name. Um, I, you know, if they ever did my movie of my life, um, I, I, I don't know. I that's an interesting question. Could I play myself? I I don't know. I, perchance, cannot picture you, for instance, playing cruel. There is nothing about any performance I've ever seen you in that exudes any type of cruelty. 
Swearingen exudes cruelty, his character in Deadwood. He hurts people, and he's able to walk away from them and to walk away from the hurt. Have you ever had to play cruelty? I cannot picture you vouchsafing that part, not because of any dismissal of talent. It just doesn't seem part of the essence of your makeup. It really isn't. Um, there was a role I did once on Glee where I played a Fox executive producer. And my lines in that scene were very uh, condescending, cruel, and snarky. I, and it took a lot of rehearsals because I don't know how to be snarky. I, <laughs> I can be sarcastic and maybe a little passive-aggressive here and there, but snarkiness and cruelty isn't isn't in me. It never has been. That's nice to know. I feel much safer now. <laughs> oh, good. Do you read your own reviews? Pardon? Do you read your own reviews? Do you open up the newspaper and find what someone has said about your performance? Not very frequently, every now and then. Um, there, you know, sometimes it's interesting. I, I learned this a long time ago. One of the successes of being in this industry is not to believe your own press. In other words, um, I know who I am. I, I don't, there's nothing pretentious about me. What you see is what you get. I don't try to be somebody I'm not. And I think if we eat up all the wonderful things that people say about us and we're just, well, I'm this, I'm that, I'm wonderful, then you lose yourself. You become conceited and arrogant. Not again, I don't ever want to be that kind of a person. I've always wanted to ma maintain my realness. And that's one of the things that I admire mostly about Norman Lear. You know, and he's, he's a surrogate dad to me, and he's a mentor. There is not one phony bone in Norman. What you're going to get is Norman, and that taught me a lot. I, I really despise arrogance and phoniness. I can't stand it. I can appreciate So I know you just asked me a simple question, but that's kind of why I don't read my own press for the most part. And also, I get, I've known to have a lot of criticism, a lot of ridicule. I've been parodied on practically every show, South Park, Mad TV, I mean, all of them, they parodied me. Chelsea Handler, I mean, and, I, you know, I, I think it bothers my friends more than it bothers me. If it's done, if they're going to make fun of everybody, I can deal with that. You know, that's okay. But there's been times on the Internet, social media, well, I have found vicious, vicious humor about me. 
I mean, horrible. And it it has brought me to tears a couple of times. And so I don't go out of my way to search for everything because I don't want to be hurt that often. And I don't want to be egotistical. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. It sounds frighteningly normal, giving one the impression that there's a lot of abnormality in people who present themselves as someone else. But it does make a great deal of sense, Jerry. Give credit to my parents for that too, because I had a good foundation, and they they always told me to be me. Don't try to be someone I'm not. Would you ever want to direct someone else? Oh yeah, I, I would love to have my hand at that. And you know, truthfully, one of my greatest loves is writing. And I need to write more. I am going to write more books. I, You know, I remember my mother telling me she was shocked that I became a comedian and an actress because I always thought you would be a writer. <laughs> and I am a writer. I just never, you know, looking back in hindsight, had I been, but... There's no should have, would have, could have in my mind because that goes against my spiritual beliefs. We are where we're supposed to be. But realistically, I probably could have done a lot of good as a television film writer. And I never even considered it because I went in a totally different direction, stand-up and acting. Do you keep a diary filled with a thousand and one ideas? You know, I don't. And my brain is a diary. Is <laughs> I, I, I mean, I hope that I can get on paper what's been in my head. I've done it before and I'll do it again. Uh, I've never kept a diary. And in part, the reason I never kept a diary, you want the truth? Yes, indeed. Is you have to remember, I'm 60, I'll be 64 next year, 2020. And I am a baby boomer. And we didn't even have computers in high school. Barely, Mm. barely touched computers in college. And one of my biggest frustrations in high school and college was because of cerebral palsy, it takes me so long to write. So everything takes forever. Even if I write a greeting card, what somebody can write in a minute will take me 15 minutes. And so I didn't really find the joy in writing until I had my first computer, and that was not until 1999. Jerry, we're going to have to take our second break. This is going really too fast, but we will come back and we'll continue discussing what you had. By the way, Jerry, the first 64 years are the hardest so it's going to be thoroughly enjoyable from now on. 
We'll be back in we'll be back in a moment. This is seldom said. My name is Robert. This is seldom said with Robert Amato. Back again for a final segment. Our special guest, Ms. Jerry Jewell. Program has gone by incredibly quickly. That says something about the character of the guest. Says something about what she says. When you mention the idea of direction, Jerry, do you like rehearsal? Yes, I do. Why? Many people often say Marlon Brando always said that he lost spontaneity. He spoke at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, said he liked to just walk out and do it. Do you find that ill-fitting to simply walk onto a set and be the character? Well, truthfully, in a rehearsal, I bring the same thing that I would bring to the actual performance. So for me, it's just rehearsal is just, I, I don't know. I don't have a problem with rehearsals. I've asked, oh, but, yes, please okay, continue. But what I will say is that when I do stand-up comedy, there is no rehearsal ever. For a comic, you go up on stage, you have nothing to fall back on. You have, you know, you you bomb or you, or you do great. So I know what you're saying about spontaneity. You need that in stand-up. Um, and if I had to rehearse the comedy, it wouldn't be as, it wouldn't be the same thing. But acting to me is different than stand-up. But I thought I'd throw in that different vision of rehearsal versus no rehearsal. Understood. I hope I'm getting the name of the actor correct, but I believe it was Edmund Gwynn, Miracle on 34th Street. When he was dying, he was asked, is this difficult? Are you all right? And he said, it's not as hard as comedy. Is comedy one of the more difficult things to do? I've been told that since day one. <laughs> uh, the only time I find it difficult is when I'm not funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I'm funny, and, you know, and that, that, oh, okay, let's put it this way. I'll put it this way. I wouldn't be here talking to you today, still doing stand-up comedy if I weren't funny. If I... Yeah, I've had bombs, absolutely. I've performed and done a horrible shows. And I walk off stage and wish I never did it. But the ratio of failure and success, I've had far more success in stand-up than I have in failure. Otherwise, I would have quit a long time ago. If, if you can't, if you're going to flop nine out of ten shows, then, then switch gears, go into... Uh, you know, get an accounting job or something. <laughs> but don't be stand-up. <laughs> I've asked people who acted or performed or danced and so forth, can you teach talent? I am wondering, do you feel you can teach a sense of humor? Can you teach someone? To know what is funny and what is not. No, you can't. You can't. You either, if in a, you either have it or you don't. 
um, when you when you do a, a movie or a series in the comedic line, yes, the director can guide you into delivering that line differently to get a, a greater impact of the humor. But as as far as teaching someone to do stand-up, you can teach someone basic formulas, but I honestly think that if humor isn't genuine coming from the heart and mind of the individual, that if humor is fake, it's not funny. How does one separate then being left with from being left at? Um, oh. Kill Burnett. Yes. Kill Burnett was my idol. And that was one of the reasons I loved her as a kid was because people laughed with her, not at her. And I think the key to that is to have a sense of humor about yourself. If you do not have a sense of humor about yourself, then you can't laugh with anyone who's laughing with you. Then it's always going to be laughing at you. You have to develop a sense of humor about yourself to have that and to not participate in vicious, cruel humor. There is actually healing humor and loving humor. Um, you know, I, I can remember, I must have been about seven, six or seven, and I was running through the kitchen and I fell. And my mom looked at me and she said, was that trip really necessary? <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed, you know? She taught me to have a sense of humor about myself. Do you bring any of that into the film Carol of the Bells? Ah, I do. Just the fact that I play a nun is humorous. (laughs) 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 Um, I just tell someone, they ask me, what role am I playing? And I say, Sister Gloria. A nun, you're a nun, and they laugh. Oh, my God. And I have to tell you why I play a nun. That's an interesting little please, story. Please do. Uh, well, they, the casting director asked me if I wanted to do this role, and it was a, it was a one scene with R.J. Mitty from Breaking Bad, who I know in my real life, and he has terrible poverty, and I thought, oh, this is cool. I get to work with R.J., and then I told Joey Travolta, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are the odds of Christmas Eve and you walk into a church and you just happen to sit next to someone with cerebral palsy and you have cerebral palsy? In a huge church, you're going to sit next to someone with CP that you don't know that you've never met before. And he said, well, it could happen. And I said, well, yeah, it could happen, but highly unlikely. And he said, well, are you telling me you don't want to do the role? And I said, no, I'm telling you that I don't want to have terrible policy. (laughs) 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 And he, you know, David and Joey just looked at me like, 
well, how are you going to not have cerebral palsy? Because I can't hide it in my back pocket. And I said, well, really easy. I can be a nun. (laughs) (laughs) And they still didn't understand my thinking. And I said, no, seriously, if you put me in a habit, and I guarantee you there are no nuns with cerebral palsy on the planet, just put me in a habit, and I'll try not to move. I'll be real still during my life, and it won't even look like I have the cerebral palsy. Um, so that's why I wanted to be a nun and also be, like I said before, my sister passed recently, and I asked Joey if I could name my character Sister Gloria after my sister. So that's why I am a nun. And unfortunately, I wasn't that great of an actress because when I watched the film, I still look like I have to. <laughs> Even in a habit. I wasn't really good at hiding it. Okay, I'll let you reverse that feeling a bit. Tell the listening audience why they should go and see the film. They, it, it's a wonderful film. And in fact, it's 70% of the roles and even behind the camera are hiring people with disabilities. The story is incredible and it will change people's minds about perception of disability. Uh, it's a beautiful Christmas story. It it really is. And, and you can see me as a nun (laughs) and it's probably, (laughs) probably the last time you'll see me as a nun. (laughs) (laughs) Segwaying very quickly into, uh, I'm walking as fast as straight as I can. Is there a sequel to that? I am writing another book. I'm writing a couple of books, and I'd like to... Actually, that book, I'd like to put in reprint with new chapters, additional chapters, because a lot has happened in 11 years since that was published. And so I'm going to work on another version of that with a new cover, new pictures, everything. And uh, I'm working on another book also. So, yeah, I am working on a couple of books. What is your methodology as a writer, Jerry? Pardon? How do you approach writing? 200 pages that describe a person's life are not easy to come by. Not everyone has that talent, that fruition, or that determination. How do you approach the project? For some reason, writing comes very easy to me. I I can sit down at a computer and write 20 pages in about, I'd say, a couple hours, easy. Um, for some reason, it's just a natural flow. And what I do is go to a higher place when I write. Because a lot of times I'll write something. You know how they have Facebook memories of stuff you posted years ago? Indeed, yes. And I'll look at it every now and then. And I'll read this long paragraph that I wrote like eight years ago. I have no memory of writing it. And I'm reading it going, wow, that's good. I like that. (laughs) And 
I think I go to a higher place to write, truthfully. It comes from a higher source. You infer and mention without saying a very fervent belief in the spiritual. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah. I, I think I understood what you said. There are those, for instance, who act religious, who act spiritual, who act like there is a, a higher plane. You've just inferred it, said it, embraced it, and then wanted to go on, presenting it as something so natural you felt you didn't need to explain. Is that feeling innate within you from birth? It is, no question. And I believe that that's what kept me alive for the first three months of my life in a glass box, in an incubator with no human contact. Nobody, nurses were not allowed to touch me. They had to handle me with gloves. I had no physical contact for the first three months of my life. And looking back, I thought, how did I live? How did I make connection to this world when I was so isolated in a little glass incubator? And I think innately, I never separated myself spiritually to stay alive. Truthfully. There is a movie that uh, Joey Travolta's brother, John Travolta, made, The Boy in the Glass Bubble. If you were to look back on yourself and encounter someone whose life is paralleling yours, a reflection, so to speak, what is the most important bit of advice you would share? To... Listen to your gut. To always go with your gut. Um, that's the most important lesson that I have learned in my entire life is to go with my gut. Um, just get out of your own way. You know, every time I second guess myself, I get in trouble. Every single time. <laughs> Just get out of your own way, because when you second-guess yourself, that's the brain trying to manipulate or rationalize what your gut is telling you. So go with your gut. Do you feel, then, your art form can be destroyed by over-rationalization? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Definitely. I mean, I'm not perfect by any means. And I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. But honestly, the mistakes that I've made, without question, every single one has come from self-doubt and not going with my gut. Every single mistake that I've made. Is there a role that you would vouchsafe wanting desperately to play that you might have but you did not follow, using your quotation, your gut? Is there a mistake you've made that you still regret somewhat? We all have them. Do you? Is there a mistake I've made in the industry? Is that basically... In the industry, uh, to, to ask you, is there a mistake you made in life, seems rather intrusive, frankly. I enjoy these discussions. I'm sure the listening audience does. 
because of the respect you imbue in the conversation. The industry, has there been a mistake made that you'd love to go back and say, no, I'll go left, not right? Uh, yes. When Fact of Life offered me a fifth season, they offered me one episode for the whole season. And my manager at the time felt that it was a slap in the face for everything that I had done for Fact and all the awards that were given and recognition, they couldn't believe that they only offered me one episode and they told me to turn it down, that they will come back with a counter offer. And so I turned it down and the answer was, okay, then walk. And I walked and I cried myself to sleep. Because I wanted to say yes, even though I knew that my managers had a valid point, but my gut was telling me to say yes. And I did what my managers told me to do. And I don't fault them. Realistically, they were correct. But this goes with my gut. My gut said, even though realistically they're offering me not a very good deal, I should take it anyway and see where it goes. Jerry, Jerry, I must say that we've run short of time and it leaves the door open for a myriad of experiences we might share with the listening audience down the road. Just to perhaps a bit of advice that someone who knows you now at the end of a microphone cable, spend some time in front of a mirror. You'll begin to love what you see. It's been our pleasure, oh, Jerry. Thank you so much. I, I so enjoy my interviews with you. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. Mm-hmm.